Today, I want to talk about a really horrifying tragedy. And in keeping with the theme of this show, one that was entirely preventable, caused by the recklessness of the wealthy and powerful. I want to talk a bit about the Johnstown Flood, known as the Great Flood of 1889. On the afternoon of May 31st, after a historically severe storm, a dam holding back the Connemaw River gave way, releasing 3.4 billion gallons of water downstream. The 60-foot wall of water eliminated anything in its path, at times equaling the fluid flow rate of the entire Mississippi River Delta. An hour later, when it reached Johnstown, Pennsylvania, it was a mountain of debris moving at nearly 40 miles an hour. The flood and ensuing fires killed 2,208 people, obliterating four square miles of the city. In this episode, I want to talk about the context surrounding the flood, the events of May 31st, 1889, and the series of protracted legal battles the citizens of Johnstown fought in the pursuit of justice. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 112, The Great Flood. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. Before we go on to the show, one quick note. Thanks to a listener on Facebook for pointing this out. In my citation links for previous episodes, I've been using a link shortener so that the Apple podcast descriptions look a little bit cleaner. But I've just been made aware that older links have been recycled and now route to irrelevant destinations. I will be going back through all the episodes affected and inserting persistent links. If you're listening to this far in the future, hopefully everything will be cleaned up. But for now, if you run into a broken link, you should be able to find the source I'm referencing by just copy and pasting the name into your search bar, maybe including the topic that the show is on as well. And with that, let's talk about the Johnstown Flood. So, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of context we need to have before we can get to the flood itself. To start, we need to go back to the 1790s. After the end of the Revolutionary War, there was a relatively quick population expansion west of the Allegheny Mountains, in modern-day western Pennsylvania and Ohio. The new founding documents of the United States, as well as state legislatures themselves, endorsed and encouraged the act of homesteading, settling on Native American land and claiming it as part of the United States. As a result of this population growth, coastal industrial cities like Philadelphia and New York became more and more motivated to find ways to ship goods in this new Western market. One of the first major pieces of infrastructure to emerge out of this was New York's Erie Canal, which opened its first sections in 1821 and connected New York City to the Great Lakes. The government of Pennsylvania saw the incredible success of the Erie Canal and decided that they should have a cut of the canal's cargo traffic that was delivering goods to Pittsburgh. As a result, in 1826, the state legislature passed a package of bills to fund what was called the Main Line of Public Works, which would establish a network of canals and incline railways that was capable of transporting freight from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh in three to five days. Previously, it had taken weeks. 
This massive increase in speed, coupled with the technological complexity of the system, meant that it was lauded as a modern marvel after its completion in 1834. The network was split into named divisions for each of its canal and rail segments. The ones we'll be dealing with today are the Western Division Canal and the Allegheny Portage Railroad. The Allegheny Portage became the Western Division in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Canal barges, which had been split into sections and carried across the mountains on flat cars, were reconnected and floated down to Pittsburgh's Ohio River. The thing with canals, though, is that they themselves require a large amount of supporting infrastructure, one such item being feeder reservoirs to replenish the canal during dry seasons. To that end, the state of Pennsylvania dammed the Little Connemaw River. The design for the earthen dam by engineer William Morris was finalized in 1839, and construction began the following year. The first problem came with funding. The main line of public works did not attract the freight traffic that the state had anticipated, and funding quickly dried up for what was now known as the South Fork Dam. Construction halted, and the dam was abandoned. Its conditions began to deteriorate, and in 1847 it suffered a minor breach that caused moderate flooding downstream. Construction resumed in 1851, and by 1853 the dam was finished. It was a 72-foot-tall earthen dam, at that point the largest in the world, with an adjustable control tower that regulated outflow through a series of five metal pipes. This gave operators the ability to manually control the level of the reservoir, being able to drain it off completely if the dam needed repairs, or if it was in danger of what's called overtopping. Overtopping is when a water level gets so high that it simply flows over the top of its dam. And for earthen dams, this is one of the most dangerous ways that a dam can fail. When an earthen dam is overtopped, small rivulets of water can quickly give way to catastrophic failures as the flow of water eats away at the body of the dam itself. But anyway, only a few years after the South Fork Dam's completion, railways had reduced canal traffic to practically nothing, and so the state gave up its canal network, selling it to the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1857 for $7.5 million. Within a year, the PRR had closed the canal lines and replaced them with rail service. Under the tenure of the Pennsylvania Railroad, the dam was not maintained and essentially sat abandoned. At some point, the drainage control tower burned and was not replaced. In 1875, the railroad sold the dam to former Congressman John Riley, who proceeded to tear out the drain pipes and sell them for scrap. There was now no way to drain the reservoir. At this point, the dam was suffering from continuous small leaks, and in 1879, Riley sold it to Benjamin Franklin Ruff, a land speculator who, in partnership with notorious robber baron Henry Clay Frick, sought to establish an exclusive hunting and fishing lodge on the shore. In the process of creating the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, Ruff commissioned repairs to the dam. Well, I suppose repair is a strong word. He patched holes and leaks with mud, straw, branches, and mining waste. This, of course, did nothing to stabilize the integrity of the dam, instead only masking its further structural decline. I mentioned earlier that overtopping is a severe threat to earthen dams, but that is not the only way that an earthen dam can fail. 
The South Fork Club's use of clay refuse from local mines put the clay core of the dam at severe risk of what's called liquefaction, which is when a waterlogged solid stops behaving like a solid and starts behaving like a fluid. In the years since the dam's failure, researchers have come to believe that this liquefaction was ultimately the fatal blow to the dam, as it broke from the bottom up. Anyway, despite Ruff's negligence, the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club soon became incredibly popular with the rich and powerful of Pittsburgh society, and included in its member roles such notable figures as steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, future Secretary of State Philander Knox, banker and future Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, and railroad robber baron Robert Pitcairn. At the behest of club members, the top two feet of the dam were lopped off so that it could accommodate horses and carriages. Now, on its own, two feet might not sound like a lot, but it's important to note, well, how lakes work, and that as the water level rises, each successive inch contains an increasingly large water volume, which then multiplies as force exerted against the dam. To make matters worse, the dam had two spillways— a thin, deep one, and a wide, shallow one. The wide, shallow one was meant to siphon off all the excess water if the level rose to within three feet of the original dam's height. Removing the top two feet of the dam made this spillway useless. And if they weren't reckless enough, they built a bridge over the other spillway, and then further limited its flow capacity by attaching to it a metal fish guard so that none of the reservoir's artificially stocked fish population could escape. It kept in the fish, yes, but it also kept in everything else. Brush, leaves, stones, and general refuse quickly clogged the grate, making the dam's only remaining spillway effectively useless. Daniel Johnson Morell, the general manager of Johnstown's Cambria Ironworks, had joined the club ostensibly in order to better monitor the dam. Upon seeing its condition, he offered to extensively repair it with his own money. His proposal was rejected. On May 28, 1889, a massive storm formed over the Midwest, and two days later made it to Johnstown. Though the exact amount of rain is in dispute, sources generally put it at somewhere between 6 and 10 inches of rain in a single 27-hour window. The morning of May 31st, the club's new manager, Elias Unger, awoke to find the water just one foot from the top of the dam. He immediately rallied as many men as he could and attempted to remove the debris from the Fitzcatcher, dig a new drainage trench, and pile dirt on top of the dam. By 11.30, it had begun to overtop. It was now certain that the dam would breach. Unger and his men had failed. All they could do was wait and watch. Though the exact time is somewhat contested, at approximately 3 p.m., the South Fork Dam suffered a catastrophic failure. It collapsed in a roar, creating a rush of air so strong that it knocked down trees and sent rocks four feet in diameter sailing through the air. The shockwave was followed by 3.4 billion gallons of water rushing down the valley. The first town to be hit was South Fork at 308. Even though it was on high ground, it still suffered significant damage, taking away 30 buildings and killing four people.
The mass of water picked up everything in its path, becoming so logged with debris that it was described as a, quote, huge hill rolling over and over. Soon after, it collided with the Pennsylvania Railroad's Connemaw Viaduct, a large, single-span stone bridge. The debris in the water clogged the bridge's arch, and the flood stopped for seven minutes before it took the viaduct down with it. To make matters worse, the temporary stoppage acted like a second dam, renewing the hydraulic power and potential energy in the floodwaters. When the bridge collapsed, it fell to a larger and stronger wall of water. Next on the flood path was the small town of Mineral Point, home to 30 families living on a single street. The flood ripped up the buildings, the foundations, the trees, and the soil. There was no trace left. All that remained was bedrock. Next was East Connemaw. Before the waters hit, railroad engineer John Hess reversed his train through the town blowing his whistle, warning the residents and saving hundreds of lives. The water eventually caught up with him and carried away his locomotive. And though John Hess survived, over 314 people, almost 30% of East Connemaw, did not. As the waters approached Johnstown, they swept through the suburb of Woodvale picking up hundreds of rail cars at the Cambria Ironworks, and from the Gautier Wireworks, miles and miles of barbed wire. Between 60 and 80 minutes after the dam breached, a 60-foot wall of water hit Johnstown. Nobody was prepared. Johnstown was already flooded, with some streets under 10 feet of water. Even if the people had known what was coming, for many, escape was not an option. Hundreds were crushed by debris, drowned, or died caught in the barbed wire. The water continued moving downstream until the mass of debris hit the Pennsylvania Railroad's stone bridge. Like the Connemaw Viaduct, this too acted like a second dam, except this time the bridge held. This sudden obstacle in front of the floodwaters caused them to rebound and divert up the Stony Creek River, which meets the Little Connemaw in central Johnstown. Eventually, the waters lost too much momentum to continue upstream, and they flooded back into Johnstown in a second deadly wave. The massive field of debris at the stone bridge, containing whole buildings, trees, trains, barbed wire, people, both alive and dead, and the splintered remains of three towns, then caught fire. The flames burned for three days and killed 82 people. Those who survived were those who made it to an attic or roof, or were in a building that floated away intact. Thousands were not so lucky. When the waters calmed and began to recede, the scale of the damage became apparent. The debris field at the stone bridge covered 30 acres. 1,600 homes were completely destroyed. 99 entire families wiped out. The bodies of 773 people would never be identified. Two days later, after the Pennsylvania Railroad rebuilt a wooden trestle to replace the Connemaw Viaduct, the restored rail service brought thousands of people from across the country to work in the relief effort.
the city's first requests were for coffins and morticians. Rebuilding would understandably take years. It would be many long months before the debris was gone. The mountain of refuse at the stone bridge had to be removed with a team of 900 men and a dynamite, administered, entertainingly enough, by a man supposedly called Dynamite Bill. Millions of dollars poured into Johnstown in foreign aid, and the members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club quickly formed the Pittsburgh Relief Committee to make themselves look better. Meanwhile, Reed and Knox, the law firm of club members James Hayes Reed and Philander Knox, represented the club in a series of suits from the victims. They claimed that the dam breach was an act of God that they could not have prevented. Coincidentally, the American Society of Civil Engineers, which in 1891 would name club member Andrew Carnegie's former business partner William Shin as its president, conducted an investigation into the causes of the dam failure that absolved the club from any wrongdoing. They said that it would have failed even if it had been maintained to its original specifications. To anyone with a functioning brain, that is obviously an incorrect conclusion, and in the intervening period a large number of engineers have conducted in-depth studies as to the myriad of reasons that the report is wrong. Yet, it's no matter. Between Reed and Knox's defense and the ASCE report that was released in 1891, the members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club faced no legal repercussions whatsoever. Eventually, this gross abrogation of justice inspired American courts to adopt the tort of Rylands v. Fletcher, a British legal precedent that makes you liable when your property damages someone or something else a legal concept that is now known as strict liability. Johnstown eventually recovered and began to grow once more, suffering two more significant floods in 1936 and 1977, but none could hold a candle to the Great Flood of 1889. The Johnstown Flood was the deadliest disaster in American history until the Great Galveston Hurricane of 1900. That same year, a man thought to have perished in the waters of Johnstown was found living in eastern Massachusetts, bringing the total death toll down one to 2,208. Bodies from the flood were still being found as late as 1911. If you go to Johnstown today, barely any traces of the flood remain. The stone bridge is still there and has grown to serve as a symbol of the city's resilience. Outside of town, you can visit the ruins of the South Fork Dam and see the still-standing, if a little shabby, buildings of the North Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. It continued on for one more season after the flood, but with no more lake, it was soon abandoned. The entire site is now managed by the National Park Service and operates as a memorial to the victims. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, then I'd really appreciate it if you subscribed or shared it with a friend. Thank you for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.